Welcome again, everyone. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon, members and guests. And please join me now in welcoming our television and webcast viewers. And thank you again for making time to be with us today. My name is Danny Asaf, and I'm the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto. And I would like to thank Bob Ramsey today for joining us in partnership for putting on today's luncheon. Thank you, Ramsey Talks. For decades, the Canadian Club has been at the forefront of providing a venue for the free and open exchange of the ideas and issues that impact our daily lives. Through our programs and activities, including our young, our youth and young leaders programs, diversity partnerships, joint events, media and social media opportunities, we offer you access to dynamic political, business and public figures, both from here at home and abroad. And to learn more about the club and its upcoming events, please feel free to visit us at our website, canadianclub.org, and you can also join us and join the conversation via Twitter at CDNCLBTO or by simply using that hashtag. Again, I would like to take the opportunity to thank our event sponsor today, TD, and appreciate your support uh, for today's luncheon. And in addition, of course, we'd like to thank Air Canada for its partnership as Air, the Canadian Club's official airline sponsor. Thank you, Air Canada. And on that note, on to the main event, and I would like to invite Bob Ramsey, the founder of Ramsey Talks, to our podium to formally introduce our esteemed guest speaker. Thank you. Now, for years, we've been taught that war should never be left to the generals. But the reality is generals, and we have five of them in this room today, are now so constrained by domestic politics and global asymmetry that they can barely fight straight. But when I say that Stanley McChrystal is a general's general, please don't conjure up an image of George Patton or Douglas MacArthur. He's a different breed for a different age. Though he still gets by on four hours sleep a night and eats one meal a day, I guess today it's lunch. As General McChrystal noted in Team of Teams, the heroic hands-on leader whose personal competence and force of will dominated battles and boardrooms for generations has been overwhelmed by accelerating speed, swelling complexity, and interdependence. Even the most successful of today's heroic leaders appear uneasy in the saddle. What's ironic here is that by most definitions, Stanley McChrystal is a heroic leader. But he became one not by leading like a chess master would, but rather as a gardener would. So let's dig into his life a little. For five years, he led JSOC, the U.S. military's most secretive branch. Joint Special Operations Command is in charge of identifying, tracking, killing, or catching and interrogating terrorists. Then in 2009, he was put in charge of all allied activities, including Canada's, in Afghanistan. A reflection that wars filled with unknown unknowns are best fought by small, highly trained teams like Delta Force or the Navy SEALs, or in Canada's case, by CSOR, the Canadian Special Operations Regiment, half a dozen of whose members are also with us today. As an expert in counterinsurgency said, the surge in Iraq was not won by the increase in U.S. troop levels, but by the elite killers of JSOC, as led by Stan McChrystal. His success in a decidedly untraditional way of fighting led to his promotion to head the International Security Assistance Force, ISAF, in Afghanistan. There he changed the tempo and the tone of the war. What was turning into a slow-mo Vietnam now had a chance of turning around. But the frankness that helped him get promoted got him in a tussle with his commander-in-chief, and so he resigned. It's been said that old soldiers never die, 
they just fade away. Clearly, that doesn't apply to Stanley McChrystal, who is a childlike 61 and who is not only surviving civilian life, but thriving in corporate life. Why? In a world overstuffed with leadership experts and shelves groaning with leadership books, what sets this man apart? Well, nearly two million people have viewed his TED Talk called Listen, Learn, Then Lead, but thousands of people have given TED Talks. And lots of generals write about leadership precisely because they are leaders in the most elemental binary competition known to humankind. But Stanley McChrystal is different, as you're about to hear. His direct boss in Afghanistan, then Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, described him as perhaps the finest warrior and leader of men in combat I have ever met. But the best testimonial I heard last night, a senior Canadian banker who'd met the general last year in New York mentioned to one of his young executives, who rather than getting his MBA, did a stint as an Army intelligence officer, that Stanley McChrystal was in the coffee shop across the street and would he like to meet him? This hard-driving, maybe talk-a-little-too-much young exec didn't quite believe his boss, but said, sure, anyway. Off they walked across the street, and yes, sure enough, there was Stanley McChrystal. The young exec was not only speechless, he started to tear up. When the encounter was over, the senior banker asked, what was that all about? Well, said the young man, it's a little like dragging a Roman Catholic off the street and taking him to a coffee shop to meet the Pope. That's why, to this day, General Stanley McChrystal commands such supreme loyalty from those who served under him, why he is still six years after retiring from the military, the General's General. So please welcome, first speaking on his own, and then in conversation with Bloomberg TV Canada's Amanda Lang, the General Stanley McChrystal. Thank you so much. There is literally nothing I can say that won't detract from my stature in the room right now. Um, thanks, Bob, Danny, thanks so much for everybody taking time to, to come here uh, today. I'm, I'm really humbled to be here and deeply appreciative that you take time on a busy day to, to join us and talk about what I hope are, are substantive things. I've been to Canada before, and my most memorable trip came in December of 2009. I was commander in Afghanistan, and I had to come back to Washington, D.C. to testify to Congress. And then on the way back, I was invited to come up through Ottawa. And I thought it would be, I was, I'd already grown close to the Canadian troops operating around Kandahar, so I thought it would be a good visit. But in reality, we landed the airplane at the airport, and I had my wife Annie with me. And so she, we got off the plane, and there was, Walt Natanjik was there to meet us, and that was great. And then there were two Canadian Mounties with horses. And these guys were in red tunics. And I said, okay, look at this. And my wife goes, boy, they look good. And I said, all right. And she goes, no, no, they look really good. <laughs> and then a little while later, she goes, you know, they, they look really, really good. And after a while, I said, shut up. <laughs> and I have, I have been in that quite ever since. Um, but I've learned to live with it. When I was, you're wondering what a retired general is doing here to talk about this subject, and you're wondering how does this guy end up in the military anyway. Well, when I was young, my father took me to a movie, and many of you will remember it. It was The Longest Day. It was the movie about D-Day when Allied forces invaded Normandy. John Wayne was a paratrooper. I saw that, and I said, that's what I'm going to be, and followed through. Years later, I asked my dad, why didn't he take me to see Wall Street? That would have that, that worked out better. But, but to just put a little bit of background on why I'm here and why I feel the way I do. Essentially, I was a product of my upbringing. My father was a soldier. My father's father was a soldier. My four brothers were all soldiers. My sister was the wife of a soldier. 
I married the daughter of a career soldier. Her three brothers were soldiers. Her sister's the widow of a soldier I served with. So, I mean, you sort of get the family habit. And I went to West Point at age 17, and I sort of didn't take the place seriously. 17-year-old Stan McChrystal arrives at 170-year-old West Point, which does take itself very seriously. And we had this power struggle for four years. Yeah, you can imagine who won. But the reality is, after four years, I graduated. And that surprised me. That amused my father, and I think it mystified the people that ran the place. But the reality was, as you go into any organization, you learn what the organization teaches. And if you stay long enough, you get shaped by the organization. Much about that is good. You learn values. You learn leadership. You learn doctrine. You learn techniques. You also, over time, learn the habits of how the organization works. And the United States Army did not create bureaucracy, but we perfected it. And so as a consequence, whether I wanted to or not, I became a product of that. And there was a solution to most problems, and that solution could be found in a checklist or a doctrinal manual and that sort of thing. And so when... 9-11 occurred, I was a brand new Brigadier General. Been a Brigadier General for about six months. And that's just the era when you're sort of in the C-suite. And that's the era when they suddenly want you to be innovative and a kind of classic and out-of-the-box thinker, but you've been stuffed into a process for many, many years, and the danger is that's become habit-forming. And so as a consequence, I was competent And I was competent, certainly, for what we expected to face. But then when I took over an organization called Joint Special Operations Command in the fall of 2003, which is a collection of America's counter-terrorist forces, it's Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, and the Rangers, all put together in this Dream Team Task Force concept. When I took that over, I was part of this extraordinary elite organization with already been been around about 30 years, this rich history and this deep culture of excellence. And yet, beginning in the fall of 2003, I found out very rapidly, no matter how good we were, we were wrong for purpose. What we faced in al-Qaeda in Iraq, beginning in the fall of 2003 and then going for the next five years, was completely different from anything we'd ever seen before. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was different from its predecessor, Al-Qaeda. It was 2.0 to the original Al-Qaeda. ISIS is 3.0. It operated in a way that was loose association network. It was resilient. It was agile. It could do things with very decentralized execution and very general guidance from above. So it didn't operate with the same constraints that most historical terrorist operations organizations operated with, and it didn't operate with a strict process-driven hierarchy like we did. And so as a consequence, we ran into this information technology-fueled entity that was a complete, it was like operating in a hurricane. You're preparing for something, suddenly you're near this maelstrom, and things are moving faster and more complex than you'd ever prepared. And so for the next five years... I went on a personal journey to change what I thought about leadership and what I had to do. And that became fundamental transformation internal to me. And then the organization did the same thing. And it didn't do it because Stan McChrystal directed it and said, I have the clever plan, here's what we're going to do. We sort of did it together. But it was the same sort of thing that we see in other walks of life today. And when I left the service in 2010, one of the questions I had was, the things that I had seen in war were those unique, one-off, peculiar things to that, or were they actually universal? And are all of us running into the interconnectedness and speed that has created this really disorienting environment in which we operate? And I've come to the conclusion, everybody's facing the same thing, almost no matter what walk of life you're in. So I developed a different feeling about what leaders have to do, what leaders have to be, and how organizations need to adapt and become adaptable, become fundamentally adaptable if they're going to be effective in the future. So that's the background. That's where I am. I, uh, I look forward to the conversation.
Thank you, General. Um, you say, I mean, the book is a, it's a business book. It's about leadership, and it's designed for business businesses to use. But you frame it in your experience yes. of war. And the reference you make to uh, a new style of fighting, a more adaptable, a looser, and your efforts to, to mimic it, if you will, um, in the context of the fight going on now, because as you said, if al-Qaeda was 2.0, we're at 3.0. ISIS yeah. is another level. I don't know where you would put citizen uh, jihadism, yeah. but it's, it's looser and less structured than ever. How are we doing in that fight and yeah. our ability to mimic that kind of adaptability? Yeah, Amanda, you hit something really important there. As we ran into al-Qaeda in Iraq, the first thing is there wasn't a good blueprint for how we should change. And the closest thing was what al-Qaeda in Iraq was doing. We didn't want to become them, but things about how they operated, leveraging information technology for this extraordinary fluidity, uh, became key to us. And so we had to hold on to those things which made us really strong, but we had to change how we interoperated to do that. The problem is big organizations don't do that naturally. You know, if you look at the, the, uh, the things Darwin taught us on evolution, species evolve when they have to, and only the strongest survive. What we don't do is we don't spend a lot of time thinking about all those that didn't evolve. And so I think what happens is you think of big militaries, and I'll even go more broadly than militaries. I'll talk about governments because you have diplomacy and all the different parts of it. They almost by nature are process-driven. Leaders have a tendency to become risk-averse because there's political risk. And I'm not talking about personal physical risk. I'm talking about political risk. There's organizational risk, whether you'll be viewed as uh, successful. So there's a tendency to do what has been done before. There's a tendency to go into your doctrine and follow that because who ever got fired for following doctrine? And so as a consequence, you get organizations that spend a, spend a lifetime developing people in that, and then you create leaders who by habit are going to be that way. Juxtapose that with ISIS. ISIS has been created in the moment in an environment, they don't have any bad habits, they don't have any old structures they've got to tear down, they have grown organically. Now at some point ISIS will become old school and people will say, why can't you change because something else will be there. But the reality is right now they leverage information technology to get far more capacity out of their, their ability than they have. They communicate with about 100 million people a day on social media. They sell a product which we could all argue is not very sellable. Anybody here in marketing would say, how are you going to market something that's almost nihilistic? It doesn't sell well to people of any religious faith, really. And, and their behavior is abhorrent. And you say, well, how can you have bad actors selling a very difficult product? Well, the reality is they're selling it in a different environment because they're comparing what they do to the status quo, which has been very unacceptable to a lot of people in a troubled region, the Mideast and more broad. So as a consequence, what we face is we face this very adaptable, asymmetric threat, asymmetric in levels of commitment, asymmetric in use of information technology, asymmetric in demonstrated willingness to do anything, i.e., create, do the most despicable acts, do them, and then couch them in terms of if you're not willing to do this, you just don't care enough. You're just not committed enough. And that, that, seems, that seems contradictory to us, but it's actually got some power to it. And so as a consequence, we're having a, we, the world, are having a very difficult time adapting existing models, limits we have, cultural restrictions to deal with something like this. I kept waiting for that to turn positive. Um, the but, the big but. Yeah. But... Um, we are, we're engaged in this fight, and it does feel, because it's unpredictable, because there's a willingness to, to do atrocious, atrocious acts, um, worse than anything we've seen. Yeah. So tell me where we are, we, everybody engaged in it, but I mean literally the militaries that are engaged in this fight. Where are we getting it right? What are we doing right here? Yeah, and, and, and if you want to find something positive, there is a history. The American army has a tradition. We lose the first battle of every war. And then we take a long time learning from it and sort it out. And, I, and I, I sort of think the West is going to be there because at the end of the day, 
what has happened is that the basic underlying premise of society is much stronger in, in what we see, not just the West, but I'm talking about the, the, even those parts of the world uh, that aren't under extremist ideology. So ultimately, it's, it's got an overriding logic. It's got a compelling attraction to it. And, and what I think we're doing right now is we're starting to understand that this has got to be from a, a number of players. You cannot operate this by a single nation going to defeat ISIS. You can't make it the United States against ISIS or Canada against ISIS or, or anything. You can't even make it the West against ISIS. It has got to be an effort by all the stakeholders, and all the stakeholders are much wider than just the people on the ground in the region. It's wider than the regime of Bashar al-Assad or the government of Iraq. It's really all of the nations of the world because everybody's been touched by the result of this, the migration and the uh, proliferation of small terrorism around the world. So you're starting to get common cause. You're starting to get, we've all got to solve this problem. The challenge thus far is most of the elements that go at it are going after ISIS, but they've also got a different agenda. Turkey's fighting ISIS, but it's also worried about the Kurds. Bashar al-Assad's fighting ISIS, but he's really worried about losing control. So all the players sort of have a bifurcated effort. We're going to have to get past that. We're going to have to find common cause to solve this problem. When I say uh, solve this problem, ISIS is not the fundamental problem. ISIS is a symptom of the problem. The problem is that the uh, region has been collapsing in political, economic, and social structures. And so ISIS has been able to do well in the chaos. And, and if you look at it, organizations that are very focused and very extreme do well in chaos. A lot of time people talk about when the Bolsheviks overthrew the Tsar in Russia. The Bolsheviks did not overthrow the Tsar. The Russian people overthrew the Tsar, and six months later the Bolsheviks hijacked the revolution because they were more focused, they were more committed, they were more extreme. And ISIS is one of those elements that has basically hijacked the chaos. And if you think about it, in a chaotic environment, you're sort of willing to follow somebody that acts like they know what they're doing. And terrible as it is, ISIS claims to know what they're doing. We got a plan. Now, over time, that plan won't seem as good as it, it does up close when you're in a difficult situation, but I'm, that's my optimism. In the context of a, a need for that coordinated response, uh, what would be your message to the Canadian government and our role there? Yeah, uh, it would be you have a role, and it has got to be part of, without stealing my term, team of teams, we have got to get a number of countries together, all operating, slightly subordinating their national equities to an international effort. And that's painful. You know, we had 46 nations in Afghanistan when I was commanding ISAF. And, you know, sometimes a general wakes up and that's his nightmare. It goes from 46 to 47. I mean, for God's sakes, you're dealing with all of the national interests. You've got politicians talking directly to you. You've got all of these things. But the only worst nightmare was we've only got one nation. Because Napoleon said, they asked him what foe he'd most like to be against. And he said an alliance. But in reality, you have to be part of an alliance today. In Afghanistan, we would have never been credible as a single nation. Because if you're 46 nations, people know you're not there to create an empire or to conquer the place. They know it could never happen. And so things around the world are increasingly going to have to be this. And Canada's got to be up front. You bring a special credibility. I mean, Canada brought military credibility on the ground that I personally was able to work with in Afghanistan. But you also bring a political credibility. In reality, the United States has a form of credibility and legitimacy. But in some ways, we don't have what you do. You have uh, almost one step detached from it. That, that is very special, and we need that kind of participation, which, of course, also means that the whole effort's got to take into account Canada's views as well. You can't, you can't and you shouldn't just agree to get on the train no matter where the train's going. You've got to argue where it, where it ends up. You, you are of the view that this is not a campaign that ends with the dropping of bombs yeah. or even a ground fight, that this is a long yeah. uh, process of rebuilding in these places. Yeah. And I'm not very popular when I say this because 
If you are a candidate running for office and you say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to bomb those bums and they'll be gone. Everybody goes, wow, that sounds easy. All right, I'll vote for him. And if the other candidate says, you know, I think it's going to take 500,000 men, 30 years, and billions of dollars, and a lot of frustrations to actually fix this problem, vote for me. <laughs> you know, your, your advisors are having a heart attack in the back room. But the reality is, ISIS isn't the problem. ISIS could go away tomorrow. I mean, they could literally disappear. And everybody would have this moment where we say, ah, problem solved, thank God. But then we'd look back and we'd see Syria's in pieces. There'd still be a civil war going on. There'd still be the, front, the, the uh, different players, Iran, Lebanese, Hezbollah, Bashar al-Assad, all the different players. And peace and stability wouldn't be anywhere in sight because ISIS came from the chaos. They didn't cause the chaos. And so we, we need to understand that the fundamental problem has to be fixed. And it can't, in my view, it can't be fixed quickly because... More than 50% of Syria's population is dislocated, meaning they're not where they're supposed to live. They're either outside the country as a refugee or they're internally displaced. 24% of Jordan's population right now are Syrian refugees. Now think about that. If it was the United States, that'd be 80 million refugees inside the United States. Think about the destabilizing factor. Think of the experience of the Palestinian refugees after 1948 that went to Lebanon, went to Jordan, and the challenges that have come from permanent refugee populations, the instability that, that emanates from that. So you've got to fix the problem. You can't just say, okay, Syria can be this cesspool and we'll just kind of ignore it. It's too big, it's important, and Iraq is teetering on the edge of that as well. So the world has got to say, we've got to straighten this out. And again, we can say, well, we don't do peace, we don't do nation building. Let them do it. Well, what if they can't? Think about at the end of the Second World War. People always used to tell me when I was in Afghanistan, you know, we need a war like World War II because that was neat and clean, unless you were up close in it. And we didn't do counterinsurgency. We didn't do nation building. And I said, of course we did. The Marshall Plan was all nation building. It just happened in a different sequence. And it was trying to prevent Western Europe from falling apart. And so you're going to do that. At the end of the day, wars are about people, they're about economics, they're about population, or you shouldn't fight it. But they're just about fighting. You know, they're irrelevant. But, but that's a big, long-term, expensive effort. And that's what I think we need to actually admit. Um, to bastardize Churchill a little bit, the only thing worse than America being the policeman of the world yeah. uh, is America not being the policeman of the world. Yeah. Where is your country's commitment? Yeah, it's, it's funny, Amanda, and I'm not sure. And I think Americans have exactly the same feel. Americans will, will sit in a room like this, they'll say, we don't want to be policemen of the world. And then, then somebody else will say, America, you shouldn't be policemen of the world. And everybody goes, yeah, we should. What are you talking about? Um, so we've got a conflicted view uh, the reality is we have to be major players in any major effort around the world, um, not just because of the resources we can commit, but because our absence sends such a powerful message. If we are unwilling to participate in it, it's almost like, wait a minute, what's the problem? Why won't you do this? And so I think America's got to commit itself, but America has limits. Yet in 1946, America was 46% of the world's gross national product, 46%. Now, that's a historical aberration. That will never happen again, hopefully, for any nation. But there were a number of years when the United States had this disproportionate economic power, and we could operate with a level of unsophistication, if that's a word, because it was all sort of repairable. We could be the puppy with the big feet that goes around and knocks over stuff. Because we were, well, I would argue we were well-intentioned, but, but we can't do that anymore. One, we don't have that same kind of power. We don't have that same kind of, there's not the same vacuum uh, that the world has there. So I think America's got to be a very deft but very present player. And there's got to be a uh, component of leadership in that. Not that we are the leaders but that when leadership is exerted, we have got to be a part of that. We've got to contribute to either supporting the leadership 
or taken our, our role in it. How successful, you introduced real change in how you operated, a lot, and you, you spell it out in the book, yeah. and businesses can literally use those same techniques. Um, how successful in the end do you feel you were inside the military? Oh, completely. Yeah. 100%. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going to have such a hard time there. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. Um, inside my command, JSOC, we were very successful, not because of me, but for several factors. One... I commanded for five years, not two. I was supposed to command for two, and halfway through the second year, I, I said, I, I got to stay a third. We were in combat, and I got to be there. And so I called my wife and said, I got to stay a third. She says, ah, you know, I guess that makes sense. Then a year later, she's in the Pentagon, and she runs into a friend of mine who goes, Stan's extension for a fourth year in command is approved. <laughs> and then he looks at her, he says, you knew, didn't you? And... Uh, yeah, there's, there's sometimes when geographical separation is a positive. And, and so I was able to command for five years, which gives you time, and that, that's important. The other thing is we had this compelling requirement. The whole organization could see that we would lose if we didn't change. So inside that organization, there became this understanding we have to change and the dynamic. We also had a big advantage. We were a one-of-a-kind organization. There were no two JSOCs, so no one outside really understood how we operated, and, and nobody could compare us to another JSOC. You're not as good as that one, because we were unique, and that gave us a lot more flexibility. So inside the command, we, we were really able to make some fundamental changes, and they've continued it, because each of the commanders since I left has been peop, a person who was there when we did the change, was there when we had the requirement, was part of the change, and so they're, they're owners. Uh, in the wider military, it's spotty. There are places where it has taken. There are other places where it did for a while and then it, it backslid because leaders changed and whatnot. It's not yet in the DNA of the organization writ large, the military of the U.S. government. But there's enough, there are enough proponents of it, there's enough pockets of it that I think that in the right cases you can, you can make it work more easily. I see the same thing in corporations. We normally we work with a lot of different companies, and you normally start with a CEO who believes. A CEO goes, we're really good, but we're not going to be good for the future unless we start changing right now. And then you've got to create this narrative for change. You've got to create a consensus. You've got to get a group of apostles who will do it. And then you've got to stick to it. Because if it's one of these things where you come in and you go, okay, this corporation's overweight, we need to slim down, and you, you put in the fad diet of the week, and then three weeks later, as soon as you shift off of it, everybody goes, okay, that was the latest fad, put that on the fad pile. And that means every time you, you say, okay, we're going to change something, they just kind of roll their eyes and go, we'll just wait this one out. And some organizations, we go through that period for some months where there's a bunch of people in the organization goes, ah, you'll be gone soon, and... But, it, but it's not been that way. Most of the, the organizations have stuck to it. And then once people see it work, then they are the proponents. I mean, of course, the reason it's not a fad is because the issues you're bringing together are we live now in a complex world, and most of our systems and processes were designed for a much more linear world, yeah. uh, and that adaptability is the key. And we've talked about this. Executives get that. They understand all of that. Uh, it's the ability then to implement that becomes... And you said something interesting earlier to me uh, about whether an existing leader can be the one to transform and whether that's really ever happened particularly. Yeah. Does a CEO have to fire himself or herself? Yeah, that's a question. I don't know. Amanda and I did have a great, because I've been asking this question to people. Have you ever seen an organization of size that has gone in a direction, been successful for a while, and then started to truly fail and then have that same leader do a fundamental change in the organization, a new direction, and and uh, pull it out. I'm sure it's happened. I just don't know the example. Everybody immediately pulls up Steve Jobs for me. I said, but he didn't count. He left Apple, and he came back. Um, so the question is, can a leader who's been the, not only the architect of success, but also the architect of failure, can that person still have the credibility, legitimacy, energy, whatever it has to be put together to do it? And I don't know the answer. I want to believe yes but I just haven't seen. Is it easier for a company that's still successful to implement this kind of change? In other words, you could go to one of our big banks and say, 
there's some probability that the blockchain puts you out of business. Uh, discuss. Yeah. But the big banks are doing pretty well. Uh, is it easier for them to make this kind of change? No, I think it's much harder because if people are doing pretty well, if they're getting bonuses and business is good and you say, you know, we there's a tsunami coming and we're really going to have problems, a few people will see it, but most people will go, wow, we don't want to let go of the side of the pool right now because, you know, things are all right and you could drown out there. And so the problem with JSOC was inside my organization, we were doing really well. We're losing the big war. And the opposition that I got was from people going, hey, we're doing our part. The rest of it is not our responsibility. And I had to make the case, you know, we just don't want to be part of a losing effort. So we have to, to change part. In companies where things are going really good, you see this incredible inertia. And it's fear. It's, you know, people tend to stay in their lane and they don't really want to look up uh, in many cases because somebody else is supposed to do that. So the burning platform makes it much easier. The problem is when the platform's burning badly enough, at a certain point it's hard to change because you don't have the airspeed and altitude. At that point when it's obvious, you just can't do the change because it's too late. I tell a story in the book about uh, a United Airlines flight from 1978 and they flew from New York to Denver, and then they got new passengers, new fuel, then they flew to Portland, Oregon. And when they got outside Portland, Oregon, when they went to put the landing gear down, they could see, beautiful day, they could see the landing field, they heard, they heard this bump, and they thought they might have a problem with one of the landing gear. Now, they didn't think that it was broken, but they weren't sure, and so they started saying, what do we do about this? They called the ground, they did procedures, they prepared for a rough landing. Now, this wasn't a potentially fatal thing. And they did this for an hour and 15 minutes, following checklists and whatnot, ran out of fuel, crashed the plane, and 10 people died. Perfectly flyable airplane. Everybody healthy. 10 people died because they couldn't deal with the problem as it really was. They just tried to follow these procedures, and they they kind of thought all was well, and suddenly the real problem became something completely different. And you start to lose, once the platform gets to a certain point, you start to lose options. It's a, a tragically good example, and the, you note in the book that the engineer in the cockpit who repeatedly warned the pilot that they were getting lower and lower on fuel was the only person in the cockpit to die. Um, tough segue, but you have made a reputation, um, a lifetime, built on candor. You speak your mind. And Part of what you recommend in terms of team building and trust is breaking down silos, sharing information, none of this kind of... And yet you paid a pretty big price for, for candor, um, and so did the mission in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and, and what Amanda's referring to is in... Uh, and Bob mentioned it a little bit. In June of 2010, there was an article that came out in Rolling Stone that accused me, me indirectly, but my staff, of, of saying things about national leaders that were inappropriate and whatnot. And it created a big media storm, and I offered my resignation, it was accepted. And, uh, and you move on with life. And so the answer is, yeah, there, there's a price to be paid for candor, um, and there's a risk to it, and if you don't do it well, you deserve to pay a certain price. If you are irresponsible, you know, that's not right. But there's a really big price to be paid for a lack of candor. You just don't pay it obviously, and it, it comes day to day, and it's insidious in an organization. And if you have an organization, if you as a leader create an organization in which candor doesn't reach you, the reality is you don't get a real vision of what's going on. You may feel good, you know, when the guy flying the plane goes, how are we doing? Everybody says, fine. And he ignores the flight engineer, says, we're running out of fuel. No worries, as long as you don't mind crashing. The so what I would argue is candor is essential, but it's not natural. We think it is, but it's not. And it's particularly not natural in organizations that have a progressive system where you enter as a young person and you work your way up. You may think you're candid, but you go up and you start to hold back what you say. You start to change the way you say it as a leader. You start to not ask questions that you don't want the answer to. Amanda and I talked about this. It, when I became a senior general, I learned if I could go places if I asked the right question, I'd get the answer I wanted. And I'd go, soldier, how you doing? they go, fine, sir. Because that's what they're going to say, because that's what they think you want to hear. I mean, the guy could be wounded, and you'd go, you're not fine. And he'd go, yeah, good point. 
Um, but, but I found you had to create an environment, and you have to keep working at it because everybody at the end of the day wants to hear what they want to hear. You have to force yourself not to. I, I developed a few questions, and one was I'd go to young people out in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan, little bases, and I'd get the sergeant or the lieutenant, and I'd say, all right, if I told you you can't go home until we win, what would you do differently? And, of course, the immediate response is this kind of nervous giggle. And they're thinking, you can't do that, can you? <laughs> and, you know, I'm a four-star, and they're not sure, but I can't. And, and I go, no, really, what, what would you do? And it was funny because their entire face would change, and they'd go, sir, I'd do a lot of things differently. We've got to take a long-term view. We've got to do this, this, this. And I go, well, why aren't we doing that? And sometimes you see them go, well, I don't know. Why aren't we? And that's how to get that candor up from somebody who says, sir, we're not going to be successful doing this this way. But if you don't learn to ask that question and then be prepared to hear the response, it, it'll put you in a bad position. And when you are very senior, you have to understand that even a slight, um, slight response from you will be read in a huge way. We did this daily video teleconference when I had Joint Special Operations Command, and we ran all these chat rooms so people could chat. We had about 7,500 people on this thing every day for 90 minutes, whole command. And I was the orchestrator. It wasn't to me. It was a big conversation. But there'd be these chat rooms, and I would have my reading glasses on. If I took my reading glasses on and rubbed my temple, people would be chatting. What's bothering the old man? What's the problem? You know, and that sort of thing. And so you had to learn that everything you do is, is of exaggerated uh, importance. And so you had to learn to exaggerate the positive things and, and try to be disciplined about everything else. It, uh, it would take skill to persuade somebody very junior to be open, yeah. truly open, with the equivalent of the Pope. Um, is, that, is that part of the... Was it a tactic on your part that you, you actually participated in real combat missions? In a way that actually, when I was reading about it, I was thinking, if this was my four-star, I would tell him to stay the hell away from the bullets because yeah. we need him. Um, but was that to build trust? And is there, a, is there a corporate equivalent of that? I'm not sure what it would be, but... Yeah, that's a great question, because people would ask me, and I would do that. And, you know, on the one hand, some people would say, well, you're going out so that people can say, you know, you're trying to be a hero or something like that. But I'd go on these missions, and I'm zero value-added. You've got a senior general going on this night raid with Delta Force or the Rangers and all like that. And they've got conflicted feelings. On the one hand, they like it. They liked it when I'd come. They go, you know, the old man's coming with us. On the other hand, they didn't want to be the one running the mission when I got killed. Because, they, you know, that'd be a black mark for a long time. Um, <laughs> so they, they were conflicted. But generally it was positive. But I had to do certain things, I thought. First, I had to see what was really going on. I had to understand what reality was, and it's always different from the brief. Even They're not trying to. You just get on the ground, you suddenly realize what works and what doesn't work. I also had to show them that they were not less important than me. And so if people were getting killed and wounded on a constant basis, I had to show I was willing to accept some level of that risk as well. I wasn't out every night with them, but the reality was I had to show a willingness, a respect for them to do that. And so... I think corporate leaders do that when they go down into plants, they go to places where people are selling, you know, and they go to where the hard stuff's being done, and they try to get up close to it, and they try to see, okay, what's the real challenge here? How hard really is it? Because it's really hard. And even if they can't fix it, I think all of us appreciate when our seniors come down and they go, okay, I have an understanding for what you're dealing with. And uh, so, so that's what I was trying to do. And, and the reality is, if, you, if you're stuck in a bunker or something like I was, you're willing to go anywhere to get out. You um, have a reputation also for being very disciplined. Uh, you run seven miles every morning. You eat only dinner, uh, sleep four hours. Is there anything you're not disciplined about? Oh, there's a whole host of things I'm not disciplined about. I've got a list of bad habits that, you know, would fill a book. Um, but, but I have a few good habits, and they were sort of shaped. Physical conditioning is very important to me. Not, 
not because I'm an athlete anymore, you know, anything, but simply because it makes me feel better. And I think that it makes me, even if my day's absolute crap for the rest of the day, if I had a good workout that day, the day's not a loss. Um, I think if I have any biggest weaknesses, it's, it's controlling your reactions and your emotions, how you treat people. You know, most of us know, if I gave everybody here a card and say, what does a good leader do? Most of us would fill that card out pretty well and pretty much the same way. The problem is we all get a lot of chances to be a good leader through the day. And I'm talking about from the moment you get up and you have the first interaction with a cab driver or somebody like that or a junior person in your organization or somebody gives you bad news or you're doing something, you get this set of chances to be a good leader. Do you stand up straight when you should? Do you, do you make the phone calls to congratulate somebody that they deserve? But it's a little inconvenient. So you get all these chances every day. And the question is, how many do you get right and how many do you get wrong? And when I was a, a four-star, I'd go around Afghanistan. I might see 250 soldiers in a day, and each one for just a pretty short amount of time. And I might get 235 of those interactions right where I was positive, I was all the things or some of the things that a leader ought to be. And 10 or 15, I wouldn't. Somebody would respond a certain way, and I'd snap or I wouldn't be as kind to somebody as I should be. And at the end of the day, you go back to your little room where I lived, and you think about those 15, because you say, I knew better. It wasn't a case of me not knowing what to do. I just didn't have the personal self-discipline to do it. Um, So I think leadership is more self-discipline than it is brilliance or anything else. It's more being willing yourself to be a good leader, do what you, you know is right. I try to use certain process things in my life to force myself to do it. I have certain times to do certain things because if I don't do it that way, I, I won't do it. And, and I, think that, uh, I think that's where discipline can help you out an awful lot. All right. I hope you forgive the question. But speaking of leaders, it's my last question. Yeah. Who would you like to have as the next president of the United States? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure it's an American. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're... We're, we're taking a, over down there. We're, we're in a bad way. Um, well, we've let our process get um, corrupted. Our process is such now that a quote by Adlai Stevens, who was a politician in the middle of the 20th century, is really apropos. It says, the challenge of the presidency is doing what it takes to get elected and still being worthy of the job. And there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, And so I fear that what we're doing is we are creating an environment where you've got to be a showman, you've got to be glib, you've got to do all of these things to to sort of sell your product. And then at the same time, you've got to be a very thoughtful, mature leader who's going to be really good for the long haul. And it's hard for people to do both of those in what is increasingly um, an immature, you know, sort of three-ring circus. What I think we need for a president right now, to be honest, is I'm not, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat, and I, and I try really hard not to be, because I really do fall. My, my views are very much centrist. Um, I don't want us to pick a president because they have very strong feelings on gun control or, or abortion or something like that. I want us to pick a president who can get people to work together, to recognize that most nations, particularly ours, has all these different groups with all these different views, all of which are valid, but all of which have to be triangulated to something that works. And that means compromise has got to be a positive term, not a negative term. That means that deal-making has got to be the art of it. That means that that person uh, has to be viewed not as just the leader of a part of the nation or, or a political party or an ideology. They've got to be viewed as a a leader for all of us, and I think that if we can't produce that, we are going to continue to struggle. You might even say the leader of a team of teams. I would say that exactly. Thank you, General. Thank you so much, Amanda. I appreciate it.
Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, General. You know, if I don't know whether we if we could took a poll in this room, we might have an idea of who we would think we'd want to support for president if Canadians are allowed to do that. <laughs> it's my it's my honor and my pleasure now to get an opportunity to thank both uh, our guests and to thank uh, Amanda first on behalf of the Canadian Club and on behalf of you all, business leaders, interested citizens who care about our future, who want to come and learn about these innovative ways to guide us through the complex problems of today. And um, firstly, Amanda, I want to thank you again for sharing your time with us at the Canadian Club. And with your experience, your thoughtfulness, you're able to evoke uh, and elaborate, allow our guests to elaborate on the things that are important to us all and we came here to, and what we came here to hear. So thank you very much, Amanda. Now, uh, there is no doubt uh, Amanda was able to elicit uh, that candor that we were all waiting for. And I know, I think the general uh, is, uh, is running to catch a flight. But I did want to take an opportunity to thank him and to thank all of you for coming here and to see what the future holds for us in incorporating some of his ideas of leadership to help us through these complex issues. We all know the essence of leadership is really to be able to take us from that point of hanging on to the side of that pool and putting our, or otherwise putting our head in the sand and unfortunately then looking up and finding the problem even more complex. It's that unique ability to be able to see and to take us from what we know through the unknown to hopefully a better place where we can find a way through some of this gloom and, and uh, look for a, a better and brighter future. And clearly, the general represents the best of, of American values and the best of all of our values and something that has served the world well for most of modern history. And we can only continue to, to thank him and to thank his contribution and, of course, his continued writing to help us guide, guide us through these complex and turbulent times, like I say, to a, a better future for us all. So thank you all for joining us. Thank you for coming. And we really appreciate the time you have spent with us today. Thank you. I would like to quickly take the opportunity to thank our sponsors again, TD Bank and Air Canada, and thank you for helping make this day uh, such a success. Thank you, Bob Ramsey and Ramsey Talks, for partnering with us, and we look forward to partnering on future events as well. And on that note, I'd like to welcome you to provide us any feedback you have on this event. We take that to heart, and we hope to make these events better and of more value to you. And on that note, the meeting is adjourned, and have a great afternoon, everyone. <laughs>